Welcome, everybody, to the One to Go show. It is Puka once again joined by Ryan Aho and Bert Lehman. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. And obviously, we're coming off of Florida Georgia Speed Weeks, and there's been a lot of chatter out there about which series, the Lucas Oil Late Model Series or the World of Outlaw Late Model Series, has the stronger field of cars this year. So we're going to dive into that tonight, and we're going to put Bert Lehman on a pedestal first. So welcome to the show, Bert. And, you know, let's, why don't you kind of expound on what your thoughts are on, A, which series is tougher and kind of how you define, you know, what a big name driver or a top name, you know, kind of a top gun driver is. Well, I mean, me personally, um, I think uh, the Lucas Oil Series uh, has uh, a deeper field of late model drivers in the world of outlaws. Uh, granted, uh Chris Madden and uh, Scott Bloomquist moving to the world of outlaws has changed the dynamics a little bit and added some star power to the world of outlaws. But I still think uh, from top to bottom, uh, the Lucas series uh, is deeper than the outlaw series. And as far as what makes a star driver, I, it all depends on who you, who you ask. I mean, diehard, Dirt late model fans will have one definition. Casual fans will have another definition for what a star driver is. I kind of view it as, you know, what driver is going to make a fan put down the money to go to a track. And I mean, just as an example, I mean, we've talked about Ricky Weiss a lot on this show. And I mean, I would consider him a star driver. But does a casual fan consider him a star driver because he doesn't necessarily have the name appeal as, say, an Earl Pearson Jr., who is kind of, you know, kind of on the tail end of his career a little bit. Uh, But Earl Pearson Jr.'s name might be more recognizable than Ricky Weiss's name. So it's all a perspective of diehard versus casual fans and name recognition. Yeah, I agree. Well, it just... With that said, there, Bert, get, who do you think? I, you're, you're a. I would consider you more of a diehard fan. You know, who are who would you consider a top driver? Give us, give us a couple examples of somebody that you would be like. That that's the guy. That's the guy I want to go watch. Who who in your mind is a top driver? Well, I'll tell you uh, from the Lucas series. I mean, these are the drivers that. Just, I want just to... in general, yeah. We don't. I, I don't. Oh. I don't need a whole list. I, I want. Okay. I want. I want Bert Layman's top three. Who is like? Who is in your mind? Doesn't matter what series they're with. In your mind, top three in your mind. Okay, I would say Jonathan Davenport, uh, Brandon Shepard, and Scott Bloomquist. Ryan, how about you? Well, I, you know, I I, kind of, I definitely agree with Boomquist, you know, and I think that Shepard's winning a lot of races. Guy's like dry toast, though. I mean, he's got no personality at all, like a dirt clod, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, Bloomquist, he's the kind of guy that he doesn't even need to be dominant, and he's going to sell tickets, period. Why? Because it's Scott Bloomquist. He's got that polarizing personality, you know. So we'll touch a little bit. I'll touch briefly on, on the two series, and I think there's just a little bit more, like, pulling power star power just because of bloomquist with the world of outlaws as compared to lucas 
after looking at it, we kind of debated this here the, the last couple weeks. I do agree with Bert that there's just a little bit more depth as far as as talent goes right now in the in the Lucas Oil series. But let's let's face it, talent has not much to do with selling tickets. All right, you know, I'll give you an example. Okay, Matt Kenseth, Matt Kenseth. 2003 Winston Cup champion, two Daytona 500s. When he was on the top of his game, the guy did not sell tickets. If he was by Wisconsin, he would sell tickets, right? But the guy had 0.000 personality. Dale Earnhardt in his later years wasn't quite as dominant. But Dale Earnhardt, because of his polarizing personality, he, he was going to rattle your cage. He was, gonna, he was the intimidator. He sold tickets. He didn't have to win to sell tickets, right? Uh, another example of that, I guess Scott Bloomquist is by far the best example in dirt racing because he does not have to be the dominant guy all year long to get butts in the seats. Now, I think a lot of the other guys, I, I mean, he touched a little bit, Bert touched on, Earl Pearson maybe having a little bit more name recognition than Ricky Weiss. Now, I disagree. I think Earl Pearson's always been kind of like a mediocre driver at best. He had a couple years there. He just followed the series forever, right? I don't really think he's even that good. I never did. But Ricky Weiss, if you get up into our region, if you get up into Minnesota, North Dakota, Wisconsin, where the where people know him because of his Wissota racing, his five national championships there, Ricky Weiss in our area will sell 10 times the ticket of a guy that Earl Pearson. And so I think a lot of that has to do with location. And when you get on a national series like that, a lot of it's location. You know, Chris Madden, you know, he's obviously been phenomenal, but he's not a, he's not a very personality type guy, right? So I think that's something you got to look back to WWE wrestling, right? You know, if you guys ever watched it during the Attitude Area, Attitude Era, Kurt Angle was the best wrestler. I mean, he was an Olympian. He was the best wrestler. But Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock would sell a, a hundred times more tickets. Why? Because of the personality. So he's Bert's also right on the fact of it's going to be different for every person. Right. You have your you have your diehard fans that like certain people because of the talent. And, man, they got so much respect and the history and the things that they did. That's a guy like Billy Moyer. Probably my favorite driver out of all the late models ever is Billy Moyer. But he's not the guy that's like, you know, exciting. He's not the even when he races, he's not exciting. He's kind of boring to watch. He's just well, so well, Mr. Let, Smooth. let me jump in here, Ryan, because that's see, he was a guy I had on the list. I mean, he's not. I, in my opinion, a threat to win every night. So, no. you know, the thing is he, I mean, he's a popular driver, but is he a top driver? I would say he's a, see, a top driver now, top talent, absolutely not. I mean, his days are, his days are past as far as him being a, but now as far as a top draw, if a, if a, if a racetrack knew that Billy Moyer was coming to town, and they promoted the fact that Billy Moyer was coming, you're going to get a lot of your diehard enthusiasts. A guy comes to mind, Troy Powers, one of the biggest late model fans I've ever met. I, I would I would guarantee he would drive miles to see a guy like Billy Moyer because the guy has won so many races over his career. He's got a storied career. We know that his, his career is kind of coming to an end. You know, we thought it was going to maybe be before this year, but he's still racing a little bit. So I think, 
a top driver, a top selling driver, a top rated driver, right? Most popular driver. It's all different. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to one thing that race car drivers need to get a better understanding of is marketability, right? And and just simply being a very good driver, like a Brandon Shepard, I'll be honest with you, Brandon Shepard is probably one of the top, if not the top driver in dirt late model racing right now. He's definitely in the top two. And I don't think he sells as many tickets as Scott Bloomquist, who hasn't won as many races in the last few years. He's just not. Now, if Brandon Shepard had more of a personality and he was fun on, you know, they got to be good in front of the mic, too. And that's where that's where they're missing the boat here. They're not they're not getting it. He still gets a free ride. He does well. But, man, he could really build his brand and create an even bigger following with the casual fan all over the country if he knew how to be more exciting. And a guy that comes to mind locally, Puka, Jeff Provenzino, right? Absolutely. Jeff Provenzino, it used to drive me nuts. I mean, like, we we clashed for a while. We get along really good now, you know, but he, he was never the guy that, like, everybody had an opinion of him. They either loved him, he had a ton of people around his car, or they absolutely hated his guts. And you can jump on Facebook at any given time, and it's still that way. People have an opinion of Jeff Provenzino. See, I go back to Matt Kenseth. No matter how good he was at a given time, most people didn't even have an opinion of him. It's like, yeah, he's pretty good, you know, but nobody really, kind of like Brandon Shepard, yeah, he's a good racer, but nobody has an opinion. So you got to kind of have that, you got to have that personality and that's what's going to sell tickets. And and if that could happen on the national level and the regional level and the local level, there'd be a lot more butts in seats. I guarantee you that. Well, let me decipher a couple of things you guys said. Well, first off, like you, Ryan, Scott Bloomquist, I mean, you know, in my opinion, by far, by far, the mm-hmm. most popular late model driver, probably of all time. I mean, the guy's got a Wikipedia page, you know, he's got all the wins. He's got the championships of the series. You know, obviously he's got this chassis builder side now too, that makes him kind of unique among other great drivers. You know, he's almost got that car owner kind of persona. Well, like Bert and I saw this summer. Well, Ryan, you were there at the USA nationals. I mean, uh, Madden's there in victory lane and who's standing there right next to him with the number one, just like an NASCAR owner. There's Bloomquist. You know, he's got all these elements and now let's, let's face it. The guy's been just kind of a badass of the sport for like 25 years, you know? So in my opinion, by far, you know, you know, the most popular, whether he's the best, he's the most popular. Now, Bert, you brought up some good people like B Shep. Who are you? Who are your three B Shep, JD and Bloomer? Yep. Yes. Yeah, okay. So here's a guy that I kind of had, cause I, I kind of went with an A-list and I had B Shep in there. I had Bloomer in there. I had JD in there and I added, Owens and I added Madden and I added T Mac. And this A list kind of means before you even get to the show, you kind of think they have a chance of winning. But my question is in addition to JD, Owens, T Mac, Bloomer, Madden, and Bishop, would Josh Richards be included, Burt Lehman? Um, I have him, I would have him as one of the stars, star drivers. Uh, but I've followed his career since he was a teenager. So, um, you know, I'm one of those diehards where, where I follow the drivers from the regional level up to the national level, if they make it up that way. And so for me to go watch a race, I love watching, um, drivers that are just starting on the national tour, you know, but I'm a diehard, you know, the casual fan, you know, when Richards was first starting out, you know, they may have thought, who's this guy? And I think 
And I agree with Ryan that the region that the race is in does play a huge role in whether um, a driver is going to put fans in the stand. And, you know, I think like Ricky Weiss, for example, I mean, I consider him to be a star of the World of Outlaw Tour, but some people looking in may think that, well, he's just a regional driver, but, you know, they're a few years behind behind in I, I i don't know if you're understanding what i'm trying to say you know they're a little behind on what he's accomplished the last few years because they don't follow it as close as diehard yeah do. i i absolutely agree bert and especially especially with soda late models right it's such a tight little you know it's it's really it's just western wisconsin Minnesota, a little bit of North Dakota, and a little tiny bit of South Dakota, and and really that's it. So it's really a small geographic area that he flat out dominated. I mean, he on five national championships. So we in our area, we know him very very well. But somebody that has really, I mean, they don't know anything about Wasota because Wasota. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, my Wasota late model friends are going to hate me for saying this, but really it's limited late models, right? I mean, you know, they got 600, 650 horse. They're not, you know, as compared to the world of outlaws, Lucas Oil and the open late models, the UMP rules, all them, that rule base, it's a limited late model that we have. So a lot of people may not recognize them. Another guy that I would definitely put on that list is Bobby Pierce. Yeah, I, hey, I, I consider him on the B list, but go ahead. I, and the reason I put him on the A list is is he wins kind of in that geographic area. He doesn't follow the World of Outlaws. He doesn't follow Lucas Oil. He'll follow the Hell Tour, I'm sure. But he's he's somebody that myself, as a fan, right? Number one, I know Pierce because anybody that's been around racing, they know the Pierce name, right? They know the tall, cool one, right? They everybody knows that. Well, then you get Bobby Pierce in there. He is up on the wheel. As far as like entertainment value goes, that kid is flat out going to be on the wheel, jumping the cushion, slide job, ripping quarter panels off, going to the front and, and think about the USA nationals. I mean, he was horrible. I mean, he was absolutely like his car was garbage. He had no forward drive. The thing was just terrible, but he put on an absolute show in the B main just to get into the race. And, and he got one of the biggest cheers. He's starting like back in the nosebleed section in the, in the A main. And he got, he got one of the biggest cheers. Why? Because he's exciting. And if he's on the track, something exciting is going to happen. And that's, that's the difference between a top, you know, an A-list top tier talented driver or winning driver or somebody that is pure entertainment value. It's really a, it's really a good conversation and you can kind of twist it any which way. Well, yeah. So it sounds like entertainment value, Bert, it's more to you possibly like performance based. How are you defining like a top driver? Yeah. I mean, I look at performance first, but um, I mean, I, I can see where Ryan's coming from with entertainment value. And I agree with him on Bobby Pierce. I mean, he, I mean, not only does he have entertainment value, I mean, he also uh, wins races and, you know, puts on a show doing it. So here's a question for both of you. And maybe Ryan, you can start with this. So Mike Marlar, he won the 2018 world of outlaw championship. Have you had to put him on the, the B list or the C list? Where would you put him? Boy, I, I tell you, he wouldn't be on the A list. You know, he's he's talented. He's a good race car driver. 
Um, I would myself, I'd put him on the bottom end of the B list. Um, he just he he doesn't really have that aura about him, like you know the the casual fan to be like, who the heck is this guy? You know, but but he is a very good race car driver. He's accomplished. He's won a lot of things. But but I just don't think he's a draw. I, I just really don't. Depending on what if if you're in his area, maybe. But outside of his area, I just I. He, I, I just don't see it. And he kind of reminds me, you know, I kind of think honestly the same thing about somebody like Jimmy Owens, you know, Jimmy Owens. I mean, that guy's phenomenal. I mean, he was really good in the modified. He's really good in the late model, but he just, you know, he's just not real, you know, not really boisterous. I myself, you know, I like the personality side of it because transitioning into the promoter side, I I'm understanding the importance of not only being phenomenal behind the wheel, but you gotta be you gotta be phenomenal outside the car too because that's what sells tickets and that's what gets people there. You need to have people gotta have an opinion of you one way or the other. And and if you're if too many people don't have an opinion of you, good, bad, or indifferent, I just don't think you're a, a big enough draw. Bert, I'm gonna put you on the hot seat with Tyler Herb. Is he kind of an A-lister threat to win every night? Kind of a B-lister where if he qualifies right, he can do it? Or is he kind of a C-lister where if everything goes right and maybe he gets some luck, a couple of guys tangle in front of him, he'll win the race? Um, I would put him as as a a B-lister. That's kind of where um, I am. I mean, Go ahead. Um, he, he, he can win races, but he's, he's not consistent enough. Uh, running up front to be considered an uh, uh, A-lister, in my opinion. And I know Ryan's been talking a lot about uh, putting on a show, and, you know, he mentioned Jimmy Owens kind of being dry in interviews. Um, I mean, I've inter- I've interviewed a few of these drivers, and uh, probably the driest interview view is probably Daryl Lanigan. He, <laughs> he's not easy to interview because he's a man of few words. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would I would agree with you there. And he's another one that's it's hard to place. I He's a solid B-list guy. The guy wins a ton of races. He's very good. But but as far as, you know, as far as fan pull, I don't think you can put him definitely not on the A-list just because of that. I think that's a very good point. And Turbo Tyler Herb, he's kind of young. So we'll see if he comes around. Yeah, I mean, I, mean I think I think Herb has has a real good shot to make it into the the A-listing list. Um, but, uh, you know, I've interviewed Davenport before. He's a good interview. Um, McCready is a very good interview. I've interviewed him. I've interviewed Josh Richards. Uh, he's not as, he's not very talkative, but uh, he, he's not too bad. Um, I mean, actually one of the best interviews I had was with, with uh, Scott Bloomquist. And uh, I don't know if you guys want to hear that story or not. Absolutely. Well, of course we do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, this would have been in the early 2000s, and he was racing Shano Speedway. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure what sanction. Anyway, he he won the feature, and I was covering the races for the local newspaper. So I mean, I got to get an interview with the with the with the traveling driver who won the feature. But you know, I've heard stories that Bloomquist can be a you know a difficult person, difficult to interview. Uh, so I went to his hauler and I mean, obviously he was mobbed. There's a bunch of fans there. He was signing autographs and, you know, the line was really long. So I just waited till, you know, everybody got their autograph and 
he was he was by himself and I introduced myself to him and he said sure you want to come into my hauler so he invited me into his hauler sat down just had a nice interview he was very pleasant and everything so I thought that was pretty cool well yeah and I, you know he's he's kind of the ultimate <laughs> he's just got the I mean he's got the cadence he's got that that aura of a little bit of uh, he doesn't tell you too much, you know, he le- always leaves a little bit to be desired, you know, and, and a little bit of thought. And so, I mean, like I said, I think, like I said, I think that guy is just a promoter's dream and maybe we could, this would be a good time to shift back to kind of Lucas, you know, Lucas versus Wu. And I think Ryan, you mentioned that probably top to bottom, the talent at Lucas is probably a little deeper, but you know, who's going to draw more fans boy, you know, if I was a betting man, I'd lean towards Wu because they've got the voodoo child. And like I said, he's, he's a great interview. He's just, he's action on the track. I remember being at uh, a race back in 2002 uh, when he was in the points hunt and he was like in seventh place and there were like 20 laps to go. And what does he do? Pits and gets four tires, you know, because, you know, like seventh place when you're leading points, isn't good enough. It's for the win every night. Absolutely. You know, and, and I, I would agree totally. You know, when, when I saw, you know, we're hosting a, a World of Outlaw race up at the Grand Rapids Speedway. And, you know, when I saw that they they signed Boomquist and Madden to follow the series, I'm like, oh, my, this is good. And, I mean, it was automatically just a, a huge sigh of relief because you know darn well that those two, especially Bloomquist, is going to help you sell tickets. And, you know, I, that, I would even argue without them guys, in our area, you know, having Ricky Weiss there because of his experience, you know, his national championships in Wasota, that's going to pull a lot of our, our regional people in there um, just simply because of him. So I slight nod to the world of outlaws as far as that goes. You know, what we got to try to do for that, Ryan, is you got to check the schedule and see if you can get uh, Donnie shots there that night too. That'd be a huge draw. So just on a side note, <laughs> we can talk about that off the pod, but we got to try and get uh, Donnie there that night too, see if they're off. That would be good. Yeah. All right. So I guess one last question on this. On You know, to be a top driver, do you have to have Burt Lehman, a crown jewel in your back pocket? Um, I would say so. Um, it's it's kind of like in the NFL, you're not considered an elite quarterback unless you win the Super Bowl. Um, I, I, I mean, there, there's more crown jewels out there than there are Super Bowls. So I think that uh, you should have to – have won at least one crown jewel to be considered a star driver. Ryan, you agree? I do agree. And, and uh, just, I guess off the top of my head, I haven't really, I didn't even think about this question going in, but is there anybody that would, that's kind of teetering on that A list, B list um, that hasn't won a crown jewel. And, and, you know, some of the young guys, they're, they're young guns out there yet. You know, you take Tyler Irby, you take Ricky Weiss. They, they're just, they're still wet behind the ears as far as the, the traveling stuff goes, but other than those two, I mean, is there anybody that's in the conversation that hasn't won a crown jewel? Well, I'll start with that. Well, Bert has Tyler Herb won one because I kind of have him on the B list, you know, teetering with the A list, but I don't think he's won one. I mean, we no, I, I don't think I don't think he has. Yeah, because Weiss has got a North South one hundred win, and then uh, how about you know Kyle Bronson? I don't really have him as a A lister, but. You know, he's won a couple of Lucas races, but, you know, he doesn't have a crown jewel win. But uh, about that kind of – does Shannon Babb have a crown jewel win? I mean, 
I mean, he's won some, obviously, UMP Summer Nationals, but has he got a big one? Has he won the topless? See, that one, I guess I don't know. So where that's where we can bring in like a Jimmy Mars where, like I said, he might be on the end of his career, but he's done that, you know, and even Earl Pearson, he's won major events. And, you know, Don O'Neill has, and of course, Billy Moyer has, Marlar has, Lanigan has. But, you know, like I said, Bab was one of those guys that I'm not sure. And we, we talked a little bit last week about Dennis Herb Jr. He won a World 100, you know, but I would have him more of a C-list guy, although he has won the big one. So it's just, this is just so crazy as far as, is it a feeling? Is it fact? I mean, how, how you define a major driver is really in the eye of the beholder. It really oh, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And Bab has won the World 100, but he was 10 pounds light. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Can you imagine, Ryan? I mean, you've been in the big And speaking of personalities, Ryan, why don't you tell the, the uh, audience, if you can remember, you know, they did that that uh, youtube series or at least i followed it on youtube and you were featured one night oh gosh what was this like what 2012 13 14 and you know you brought up personality and i thought it was great and, and you know maybe people can check that out i don't want to put you on the spot but i think i am going to put you on the spot because it was really good it was really well done and you did a that great was job. actually on fox puka up in up in uh, northern minnesota and in, in, uh, northern wisconsin that was on fox and actually uh guy by the name of Barry Braun I think he's got he's got another video deal I'm, I'm not sure the name of the company I think it's XR or something like that but he did a, a 10 uh like a 10 week documentary on I think there was just 10 of us drivers that were following it was the Como Mod series at the time and it was actually called Fuel the Thunder and uh, it was pretty fun you know he, he followed us around we had in-car camera he followed us around the pits for a couple nights there and you know, and then uh, interviewed us. And, and the night he interviewed us at um, in Hibbing on the Labor Day shootout, man, I was tired because I just tore my stuff up a couple nights before that at the Silver in Proctor. And I was literally going on like 40 hours of no sleep because that car was destroyed and I needed to have it ready for Labor Day. And, and I was out of it. And we ended up having a pretty good show, but I may have let a, a couple F-bombs kind of slide in there. And, and uh, that's okay. Yeah, it's just part of it. But, yeah, that that was a heck of a lot of fun. And, and really, I think a lot more of that needs to be done. You know, and that's what separates right now, today, is separating racing in general. I don't care if it's all the way at the top level in the Cup Series or dirt racing or any anywhere in between. But that's what separates that in, like, the NFL, right? The NFL, there's they have documentaries and interviews, and people know the – behind the scenes stuff and i and i think that's something moving forward you're going to start seeing more of there needs to be a lot more shows showcasing these drivers and letting the fan base especially the casual fans know a little bit more about these people and that's really going to help the sport moving forward well and that's what we're going to do and just so your listeners know we're going to try and get out the three of us are going to get together a couple maybe three times this summer and kind of just get together and do you know, kind of like a shop talk when the guys are in the shop, let them relax. And uh, we're going to do some interviews and, and try to get the, you know, some stories and get to know these guys a little bit better. So um, hopefully by Labor Day, you know, many, many of you race fans have different impressions of your favorite drivers because we're going to kind of give you the inside. So with that, we're going to move on to races finishing under yellow. If you were watching the NASCAR race yesterday, you saw Joey Logano come across the finish line in an unexciting 
way. And Ryan Ejo, why don't you start us off? Because I know you got some heavy opinions on this. Uh, <laughs> should races finish under caution? Absolutely not. Never, ever. The only... The only time is if, like, a lot of tracks have where if all the cars take the white flag, the race is technically over. I'm cool with that because everybody took the whites of coming to the checkered. In fact, uh, um, Hughes down in, in Florida, he actually got robbed, right, because he had he was coming around for the checkered flag. Boom, they threw the yellow. The race is technically over. So if everybody's taking the white flag, the race is over. But they need to be parallel on that. See, one of the problems in dirt racing especially is every single track seems to have a different rule on how they end it. Now, under no circumstance, if there's a couple laps left or whatever, like I've seen places time limit them. Oh, my gosh. If If you're a track promoter and you're listening to this and then you cut your laps, like you should like lose your sanctioning body and you should not be able to promote a race ever again. That's like the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Nobody wants to see in NASCAR, they have the green, white checkered deal. Let's do it, man. Let's go green, white checkered fans want to see it, you know, in dirt racing, man, if they're, if they're coming, if everybody's taking the white, throw the checkered, I get it. That's fine. Um, or if they want to go green, white checkered, that's fine too. As long as everybody does the same thing. Now, I actually won a national championship basically this way. Um, I came in a three and four. I'd just taken the lead on a slide job off two, coming to three and four. Dave Moss dumps me off the end of turn three, cuts my tire. We both go crashing off the end. And uh, everybody had taken the white flag, and Joe Oliver actually took the checkered. He actually crossed the finish line first. But the rule they had at Proctor was – if there's an altercation like that, they go back to the last completed lap. That's how they scored the finish. Moss was just beside himself pissed because it cost him the national championship because at his tracks, that would have been a green-white checkered deal. But at, at Proctor, Superior, stuff like that, there's no racing back to the flag. If there's an altercation up front, then it went back to the last completed lap. They disqualified him. I got the win. Now, keep in mind, I would have dumped him the same way he dumped me under the situation. So I have no hard feelings there. But but there's inconsistency, right? So I, I'm a firm bull. I've been to a lot of tracks. I was actually at the Fall Classic, guys, down in uh, – remember when Alexandria had the Fall Classic? Yeah. It was an, it was an FYE event. Chris Steppen, he ran all of his shows there. And then, and then he had an opportunity to move his shows to Ogilvy, which is another great facility. The Wagamans do a great job there. And, and I really think one of the biggest reasons that he moved that event to Ogilvy was Alex. They always have a, a, a like they, they have a curfew. They have a hard curfew with the city. And they'd, they'd end the races at 10 or 10.30 or whatever it was. And I can't even tell you how many times I've been to that place and five-lap feature, eight-lap feature. I'm like, what in the world are they doing? And I actually had – I passed Scott Danzeeson for the lead. Um, I don't remember what year this was, maybe about 04 or 05. I passed Danzeeson for the lead at, at the, for the Fall Classic. I come around, yellow flag comes out, and I'm like, oh, man, I knew I had to go back because they had to go back a lap, and I had just passed them. I come out to take the green. We come around white, come around checkered. I'm like – Boy, that didn't seem like a very long race. Turns out we went eight laps. Eight laps. I'm like, are you serious? How can you possibly 
justify having an eight lap feature. It is absolutely the worst thing in the world. Nobody wants to see a race end under yellow like NASCAR did. Nobody wants to see cut laps run the darn race. And in a solution to that problem, because if I'm going to complain about it, I want to come back with a solution. I used to race up at the Norman County Speedway in Ada, Minnesota. Paul Engelstead actually ran that track and he had a phenomenal rule. After the first, if there was three yellows, whoever caused the fourth one, no matter what happened, if you cause the fourth one, you're done. There's no going to the back. Like, so if you cause the fourth yellow, bam, you're off the track. You cause the fifth yellow, you're off the track. Sixth yellow, you're off the track. And what happened is after three yellows got done, they'd say in the race receiver, all right, guys, we're on the one spin rule now. Whatever, If you cause a yellow, you're done. Boy, it's funny how things clean up after that, right? So if they have that rule, then you can run the whole race, but cutting laps, ending under yellow, all that stuff just drives me insane, and, and it should never be done. And and there was a lot of people on Facebook just blowing up NASCAR about it because it's nobody wants to see that. I mean, the race is boring enough in NASCAR. At least give them a good finish. <laughs> Bird? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I I agree. I, I hate when races end under the yellow. Uh, on our side of the state, I know there's there's a lot of tracks that have – uh, the rule where if the leader takes the white flag and then there's a caution after that, they go back to the last completed lap and that that's what the finishing order is. So it it's not the entire field has to take the white flag. It's just the leader. Um, and I agree with uh, Ryan on time shortened races. Unfortunately, uh, at least over here, you know, a lot of a lot of the tracks are in cities, so they're under they have curfews. So um, sometimes they have to shorten their races because of time, because the drivers, drivers, for whatever reason, keep spinning out um, about the only time that I would agree I, that I would say a race should end under yellow is for a time shortened race. I'll just give you an example of what they do uh, over here at many of the tracks. Uh, if they do cut a race short because of time, once the time limit is up, they'll do green, white, checkered. So if it's a 20-lap feature and they only have six laps in, but they used up their time limit, they'll do green, white, checkered. What I'd rather see is if, if the time limit is over, as long as there's no more cautions, just keep racing as many laps as you can until either the caution flag or the race is completed. I mean, it only takes at most 30 seconds to get around. I mean, say it's at a big half mile. It only takes like 20 some seconds to get around the track. As long as there's no further cautions, you can complete a race in a short amount of time without having to shorten it. Um, so that would be my suggestion for time shortening. I'm, I'm going to roll right off of that and say that there should never be a time shortened race, period, ever. Like start throwing the black flag, right? I mean, these I've seen tracks that have like a, uh, I, I can't even make this up. I've been to an invitational. I'm not going to name the track because I'm really throwing them under the bus. And literally, like, people that are listening have been there. They're going to know exactly who I'm talking about. They got they, they had out-of-car introductions for everything, and they got, like, a half-order intermission. And then next thing you know, they got a time limit, and they heat, and there's a big wreck, and they got a two-lap heat race. Are you kidding me? It's like, if they, if they, like, made the rest of the program go faster, they wouldn't have to have a time limit it's just ridiculous time limits it absolutely robs the drivers 
it robs the fans because especially, especially in Wissota racing, because we got the point average lineup, right? So your top point guys, your, your, your fast guys got to start in the back. Well, now they're the ones getting penalized. They're not the one. Why penalize the people that aren't causing the problems? The person that's spinning out every single lap, kick that guy off the racetrack. Tell him to learn how to drive. All right. You know, maybe maybe the race program go a little bit faster Then time limits should never happen. And if it comes to the issue where they have to have a time limit, they need to look at the rest of the program and figure out what the heck they're doing wrong to have a four and a half, five hour race program, because that's the problem. See, uh, these tracks have six, seven classes and then they have time limits. It's like, well, how about this? How about we just go longer races, but only have three or four classes, and we wouldn't have all this problem, you know? And that's the way I look at it. Well, and and I just want to say I don't I don't disagree with anything you just said. <laughs> I, I I was just stating that you know that's that's how uh, many of the tracks do it over here. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's nothing more frustrating than. Um, it taking forever to tow a car off the track and then then the race gets cut short. Drag their carcass in the infield and let it sit there. Let's get back to green. Well, well what's the deal with Wazoda? They they don't have a consistent rule? I mean, what, how long no. is it going to take? No, so the, when I won that national championship, you know, and I'll kind of bring you back on that, I didn't really know what the rule was because every I've raced so many tracks, the tracks were different. And, you know, here's exactly, I'll kind of bring you back to that. So, that year, basically, they take your best 30 shows in Wasoda. I had to win the feature to win the national championship. If anything else happened, if me and Moss both DNF'd or whatever, it didn't matter what else happened. If I won the feature, I was a national championship. Anything else happened, he was a national champion. So he dumped me off the end. And I remember pulling up on the track, and there was no race teamers at the time. I'm going, like, literally, I'm thinking, did I win? What happened? And I was fuming mad like fuming mad and and i i had a little bit of a short fuse and i i drove down the front straightaway i turned around i was looking at the front stretch guy questioning like did i win and he's like giving me the shrugging the shoulders going i don't know he's like hold on a minute and i'm picturing in my mind man if they don't give me the win when Dave Moss comes back on the front straightaway on the track and he's coming on the front straightaway, I am literally going to daze a thunder him and I'm going to destroy both race cars <laughs> just like days of thunder. Like when they said, change your tire, I, I, that's exactly what I was going to do. So I wouldn't have got second. I would have probably got kicked out. I was going to just destroy him. And then there was going to be like a boxing match on the front straightaway. Cause I was like fuming mad because that was a national championship on the line. Well, after that whole controversy, we went, to the Wasoda meeting wrote up a letter and we said here's the deal we got 50 some racetracks in Wasoda and and here's five different options I don't care which one you go with right pick one but Wasoda should absolutely mandate what happens if there's an altercation after the white flag is taken what what's the what's the procedures and and the Wasoda board they said well we can't dictate to the racetracks you know how they run their race program that is the most retarded thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, that's part of having a sanctioning body, right? It should be their dang job to tell the racetracks how to run the race program. I mean, everything's different. At, you have 50 Wissota tracks. you got 50 different things. Everybody starts different. You know, some people, when the green flag flies, they pass. Some have a cone. Some have a different space. 
every every the cones in a different spot on different tracks how they end the race is different it's absolutely ridiculous there is no reason on god's green earth that the wasota promoters and the wasota board they should get together and there should be a parallel deal all the way through so every single track is the same so there's never any controversy because it's in it should be in the wasota rule book but no they don't they don't have a system for it it's ridiculous it's just i, I don't get it yeah, well, they don't have a system for a lot. I mean, yeah, that is the, the sad part. Is, you know, there's guys running for national points, and everything's different everywhere you go. And, and like, as you know, Ryan, you've seen in our area, guys, you know, I mean, four or five years ago, we're traveling, what, six hours to the Wazota 100, and Billy was the tech guy in Hibbing, and all of a sudden they go all the way out there, and they're, you know, disqualified, illegal, and they're saying, geez, I, you know, Billy teched my car all year, and now mm-hmm. I come here in September, September, and I mean, illegal. What's yeah, up? It, it's it, it's it's absolutely crazy. It kind of brings you back to Florida with Herb. You know, he goes out, wins a feature. He's like, man, there should have been some consistency here. Like, we teched one way last night. We're teching a different way tonight. And it's the same thing with Wasota. So, and that's why I said on the last show, it's like, as a driver, like, I got a list of questions. I go to a new track. I'm like, well, where can you start? Where can you pass when the green flag flies? You know, how many go to the scale? How many go to the tech? Where is the tech area? You know, like, you shouldn't even have to ask those questions. If it's a Wasota race, there should be like one set of Wasota rules. Here's how it is. But it seems to be a problem all over the country. I don't think it's just Wasota. I think it's just like there's no consistency anywhere, and it just makes no sense. It's not that difficult to, to come up with a, a unified procedures. It's just really not. Well, that reminds me of a Labor Day shootout back in Hibbing. I think it was 2000 or so. Uh, remember when they put the cone on the back stretch and they said, you know, you hit the cone and you go. And I think it was a B feature and Smoke and Hank Berry was leading the field and he got past the cone. And I think Provenzino was lined up right behind him and Provenzino hit the gas and passed him, you know, on that corner and they waved the green and Provenzino went in the B and Smoke and Hank was not happy, you know, in the pits, but you know, that, that was the rule. I mean, they, you yep. know, they, have you guys ever been pitties. to Ashland to the, to the ABC raceway in Ashland? Well, I've been. No, yeah, I I've haven't. Been. So they have a cone. You come out of turn four and their cone is actually part way out on the front straightaway. And they are like absolute dictators about this deal. It's terrible. Like, like the leader flat out cannot like fire at all until they get, to the cone and if you fire like a half a car length before it boom they're docking you if there's no yellow they're docking you at the pay window there should be no cone for starting a race the leader starts the race when you come around turn four the green flag flies the leader taking you go racing this this cone deals nonsense because exactly like you said with provenzino there if a driver has a brain in their head and they're in second or they're you know right if they're behind the leader all they have they know when the leader's gonna fire they know that already. So all you have to do is leave just a little tiny bit of a, of a gap, and you know when they're going to fire, so you can fire a little bit early. So that by the time they're on the gas, you're already throttled up and tractioned up, and you can drive right by them. It's, it's, you're a sitting duck in that situation, but that's just another example. Like Ashland's the only place I know that has that cone, and I remember the cone in the back straightaway in Hibbing, and then I remember it in turn three, and then I remember they had it in turn four, and every track is different. It's just... It's insanity, and and it's just one of the one of the many things that needs fixed. I can remember uh, this was probably this was in the 1990s. Shano Speedway tried a cone on the starts, 
And I can't remember exactly what happened, but there was an accident and Pete Parker was involved and Pete just went wild. And if you guys know Pete Parker, <laughs> when he gets wild. Um, so yeah, the cone didn't last very long at Chino Speedway. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta be honest. I never seen that side of him because you know, when he came over to Hibbing and stuff, I mean, it was a big deal. Hey, Pete Parker's here, but I, you know, I was pretty young and he, you know, he wasn't over in our very area very often. I never knew he was a hothead. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's a very nice guy, but uh, when he feels that uh, he was wronged, um, he'll, he'll express his opinion. Let's just put he's it that passionate. way. That's why he won a lot of races though. That passion. Exactly. That a big deal. Well, and that's why I had a following, you know, I mean, everyone knows Pete Parker and, uh, you know, speaking of the, you know, Hitting it, you know, the leader sets the pace. I just watched on YouTube the 19, I think it was the 1990, but they had it misprinted in the 1989. You can search 1989 to go for 50. I just watched a Bert. I think the author is Shawano Speedway something, but um, Bloomquist is leading. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Brad Lipke, Brad Lipke posted that video. Uh, he's the race promoter for Shawano Speedway. Okay, so... Uh, you know, and Blumquist is leading. He's got Moya right behind him. And, you know, when he entered corner three, it was game on. He hit the gas and he was gone, you know, and everyone knew it was time to hit the gas. Like I said, Ryan, especially in, in the in the era of curfews and time constraints, why are you making people just idle to the front stretch? Let them go. I mean, they should have a cone coming out of two to get the show going faster. Why? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's I don't get it either. All right, guys. Well, we are going to move on here, and we're going to go to the last lap segment, which means we have one to go. So, Ryan, you were at a big expo this weekend, and you heard a couple of rumors. Can you expound, please? Yeah, I was actually down Schaumburg, Illinois. I was at the Motor State Expo they had down there, which is like a mini PRI show. And I figured, well, hey, there's something racing related, and I'm, I'm going to go check this deal out. And got to talking to some folks about uh, about the big block mods first of all you know and uh, we got to talk a little bit of late model racing and and uh, the guy I was talking to was actually from Pennsylvania out on the east coast I don't remember what company he was with but uh, I was asking him about I said man you must be a, a mod guy then if you're from if you're from that area he goes yeah actually he was from uh, New York excuse me not from Pennsylvania and and we got to talking about that and I said yeah you know I said you know, McCready, he's ran well in that. And I said, now Fuller's back in that. And I said, I was bringing up some late model guys. And he just kind of rolled his eyes. He kind of gave me a funny look. He's like, ah. I'm like, are you not a fan of those guys? He goes, they, they're, he goes, them two right there, probably McCready more than anybody, flat out tried wrecking the, the big block modifieds. I'm like, whoa, like, I don't know anything about these cars, right? I've seen them a couple of times. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, basically, they're mini sprint cars, right? I mean, you sit in the middle. They had the torsion bar suspension, which is a lot simpler than a four bar, and that's what they ran for years. And uh, McCready, you know, with all of his experience in, in dirt late models, they, they actually brought in, and they were working with a chassis builder to bring in the four bar suspension, which costs way more, way more to fix, way more advanced, way more technological. And, and they started putting out some four bar cars that were pretty darn quick. Well, Rumor has it that, uh, I don't know if I think it's UMPs in charge of the big block mods, 
they put the ixnay to that deal and four bars are no longer allowed so now there's a whole bunch of people that built these brand new four bar cars in the big block mods and ump says yeah that's nice you're gonna have to cut the back off that thing and make it into a a torsion bar car because we're not allowing it so so uh they're trying i kudos to them i guess I don't know why they would do it partway into the season. That don't make any sense. But, you know, kudos to them because they're they're recognizing that that could be a big problem. That's a pretty regional deal up there. They're trying to keep the cost down. And, you know, them, them big late model guys, they got a whole lot more technology behind them. That can drive the cost of the class completely through the roof. So that was interesting. But one that hits closer to home, we got to talking about the Deer Creek Speedway. And, and I was talking to some folks that are actually from down in, uh, down in the Des Moines area. And Deer Creek Speedway, as everybody knows, is for sale. Well, the rumor going around right now is IMCA has put their hat in the ring with, with possibly, you know, thinking about possibly buying as a sanctioning body, the Deer Creek Speedway. And the rumor going around is that they'd run they'd run weekly there all year long under the IMCA banner. Now, that's a USRA track right now. They got USRA mods, USRA B mods down there, you know, and they got the fall jamboree. They got all that stuff going on. But they're, the, the talk is that they would have four IMCA, like, big crown jewel type events over the course of the year run weekly the boone nationals the nationals would still stay at boone but uh that's the rumor flowing around right now that imca uh potentially looking at possibly buying the deer creek speedway that would be that would be interesting that would really change things up in uh the southern part of minnesota wow interesting any comments bert well, how far is Deer Creek from Iowa? Uh, Ten minutes. I mean, it's right. Yeah, I mean, it's right there. I mean, okay. So it's uh, you know, they are Deer Creek is literally kind of right in the middle. There, there, there's a bunch of USRA tracks around there. But if you go south into Iowa, you know, there's 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 USRA tracks in Iowa as well, right? I think Webster City. Um, I think uh, Todd Staley has a couple tracks. I don't remember the other one, but there's a couple USRA tracks there. But Iowa, obviously, huge, huge IMCA country down there. So it it's definitely an interesting development. It'll be fun to watch. Right. I mean, that's why I asked how far it was from Iowa, because Iowa is a hotbed for IMCA racing. So, uh, yeah, that, that definitely is an interesting rumor, and it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Well, we got some sad news to report. Uh, Todd Frank, uh, many of you know as a late model pilot, uh, apparently him and his sons were racing this weekend in Iowa. And on Sunday, his son Chase passed away from a car accident. I know uh, Bert, uh, Ryan, you know him. Bert, you know a little bit about him. Why don't we start with you, Bert? Uh, any stories or thoughts on Todd Frank? Well, I mean, he started racing late models uh, in eastern Wisconsin. I mean, he, he would race at Shano Speedway, uh, Seymour Speedway, and Anigo, uh, the racetrack in Anigo. And uh, I saw him win his first feature win at Shano Speedway. And, uh, you know, I always enjoy watching a driver win their first race. So I do remember that night of him winning that race. Ryan? 
yeah, you know, my condolences go out to the whole family. I mean, Todd Frank's been around racing for a long time. I know him. I don't know him really well, but I mean, I've, I know him pretty well. We've talked several times and, you know, uh, he's raced late model. Of course, his son Gunner's now racing. They made a lot of laps at Hibbing and Grand Rapids and, you know, down at Alexandria. So they've kind of raced all over the place. And then I see Todd, I see him online all the time on Facebook. I mean, he's an avid hunter and the guy's got to be completely crazy because he hunts animals that are like way, way, way bigger than us with a bow. I'm like, there is no way. But, uh, you know, just, uh, just when a life like gets taken way too short like that, it's just tragic. And, you know, my prayers go out to them and their family and, you know, it's a tough time. So if everybody can keep them in their prayers, that'd be great. Have either of you heard any details? No. No, I haven't. I haven't heard anything either. My favorite Todd Frank story, though, is, boy, about, I don't know, 2011, 12. uh, You know, I'm at Grand Rapids on a Thursday night, regular night, beautiful night. I remember sun was shining. All of a sudden, a guy shows up. uh, I see an hot laps. I thought it was Billy Moyer. There's a Billy Moyer replica 21. And I I mean, literally, I was like, like, no, it's not Billy Moyer. But come on, Roger. You know, it's like I had to hit myself, you know. And, uh. So here he comes out, this 21, and they announced the name, and I think I missed it because I'm sure I had kids with me and they were talking or something. But so a guy, you know, and at that time, you know, Rapids is getting, you know, 12, 14 late miles. Let's just say he starts last in a seven-car heat, and he just blows to the front. I mean, gone, you know, and, and wins the heat. And you could see when he crosses the finish line, you could see the the emotion in the car, uh, you know, and, you know, visibly excited, you know, and he went backward in the feature, but, you know, he showed up uh, many nights after that. And I think that's why Ryan, you know, him is that's when he kind of started. I think he was coming every week from mountain birds country out there in Eastern Wisconsin. He was making the trek all the way. Cause I think that, that he went from last to first meant a lot to him. And of course the tracks are a little bit different, you know, you know, in birds country, a lot of half miles here, there's a lot of three eighths miles, but um you know, like I said, that's when I kind of found out who he was and it was kind of a fun night. And, and, uh, Ryan, you could probably relate to that when you, you know, you start last in heat and go to the front, it's gotta be, you know, a confidence booster. Yeah. It definitely doesn't make you feel bad, especially when you're at a track that you're not extremely familiar with. You show up to a new racetrack and you drive to the front. I mean, it, it's a pretty good feeling. I mean, winning never gets old. Let's put it that way. But when you win from the back, that's even better. <laughs> For sure. All right. So uh, one topic I wanted to bring up, and we, we don't want to get too political on this, but it actually is kind of a new story, is if you're following anything on social media, you'll see that there are a ton of Trump paint schemes coming out this year. And so it kind of got us thinking about just paint schemes in general. Uh, you know, kind of what do you think of paint schemes these days? And maybe on the Trump side, you know, our drivers kind of trying to get their message out there, you know, in the future, are we going to see more, you know, pro candidate kind of messages or pro issue kind of messages. And maybe I guess lastly is, is this kind of the, you know, racing's kneeling moment where they're, you know, trying to make a stand. So I guess we'll start with you, Bert. Um, You know, you can react to anything I said or something on your own, but you know, thoughts on these, paint schemes well i mean it's uh you know it's their race car so they can do whatever they want with it if they want to uh put trump on their car you know that that's their prerogative um you know 
paint schemes in general. I'm more of a retro person. Um, I, I'm not a fan of a, a lot of these modern crap. Well, we call them paint schemes, but we all know it's not actually paint. It's vinyl. And uh, these graphic schemes are just, you know, they have all the shiny stuff and their lines this way and that way. And they look really good from from close up, but you can't read anything on the cars from the grandstand. And I think that's one thing drivers need to consider when they do the get the paint, the graphic schemes for their cars is they need to consider what the car is going to look like from the grandstand. Because after all, it's the sponsors that help um, make it possible for them to race. And, you know, like I said, regarding the Trump schemes, you know, that's their prerogative to, uh, you know, go that route with their scheme if if that's what they want to do. Ryan? <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. It's, it's, it's a crazy subject, but it's like I, it's, it's news. I mean, it, I mean, it's all yeah, over. I mean, you can't. I'm, I'm I mean, going to start. I'm going to start with with the paint schemes. I'm going to start there. And, and I will agree with Bert. I like a flashy car. I like like a lot of bling on it. But you better make the sponsor stand out above and beyond the bling. Right. Them are the ones that are actually allowing most of these drivers to even be at the racetrack. So when they have when there's way more graphics than there is actually visibility of the sponsor, that's a problem, right? So I think uh, I think that's first and foremost. You know, some of these graphics guys, they maybe need to sit in the grandstands once and see what the car looks like on the racetrack, and they need to talk to the driver. Now, with that said, you know, if the only thing that driver is giving the sponsor is their name on the car, that's a problem all by itself. That's a topic for another day. They need to be doing a heck of a lot more than that for their sponsors to be bringing value back to them to make their dollar, you know, the return on their investment better. It's got to be more than a name on the car because, I mean, I ran super stocks for a while and there was a lot of times I'm like, man, I'm just happy if I still have a body on the car at the end of the race. So if that's all they're getting, that's a problem. But I think the cars definitely, they, they just got, there's got to be, especially the primary sponsors, you better be able to read them from a long ways away. That needs to be the focal point of the car. So, and like with me, I mean, I'd go all over Wisconsin and stuff, uh, super stock racing. And I remember Kurt Myers, Team Radco. He'd call me Team Radco all the time. But Radco Iron and Supply was huge on my race car. And people knew that I had the Radco car. So that was a big deal. That was, that was you know, good job to my graphics guys. And it was Buzzy Adams at the time buzz signs and graphics that did that now <laughs> we're going to get into this subject of the trump cars and there's a bunch of them out there and and i don't really care what somebody's opinion is or whatever or their their own political beliefs and i got my beliefs and whatever that's all fine and good but first and foremost they best be talking to their sponsors right okay now if that's all a great their, point that's a great if point all of their sponsors, <laughs> yeah if all of their sponsors are like huge pro trump or whatever right and and they're like all backing it whatever that's fine then okay but number one is what if you have a, a sponsor that has a little bit different feeling you know um on the political scene now you may lose a sponsor over the deal okay now the other thing is this every single one of those cars every one of those cars the focal point is that it's it's trump 2020 that's the focal point of that 
Now, if I'm a sponsor and I'm giving these people money, not one person in the grandstands has a clue that my name is on the car because once they saw the number and they saw Trump 2020, they didn't see anything else. So now you have all these drivers that got this this nonsense, in my opinion, all over their race car. Man, I I, I, would, I would not give them money. Now, again, now if, that, if I was a sponsor and I was funding the deal and I said, hey, this is my message and I want it on there. That's a different deal. So they got it. That's a that's a conversation they have to have with their sponsors. Do I think this is a, a take a knee moment? Do I think this is like drivers trying to get their views across? No, come on. I mean, I've raced and I've been around racing my whole life. And some of these people I know that have some of this stuff on their car. No, trust me. They're just trying to make waves. And yeah, they may have an opinion, but they're not. A lot of these, they don't, they don't have a big enough fan base to make a statement. All right, it's not like it's Scott Bloomquist coming out with it on the side of his car, and people are like, "Oh wow, you know, check this out." We're talking a lot of people on the local and regional level that, I mean, really, I mean, but again, like Bert said, that's their own prerogative. In my opinion, first and foremost, the number one most important thing that they need to do is they better have a conversation with all of their sponsors to make sure that they're cool with that and that's something they want because the sponsors should be the focal point, not some political nonsense. That's a great point. I never thought of that. That's a great point. All right, moving on. Dunn Benson Motorsports is now known as Lamb Motorsports. And they have, uh, as we've reported previously on this podcast, have a leasing program out there and they've filled some rides. So, uh, Ryan, do you want to go with this, uh, start with this one, uh, as far as, uh, some, some of the, uh, names that we're going to see in the, yeah, they got three drivers and, uh, you know, the, the first one would be a guy by the name of Eric Mensker. Eric actually won uh, the championship down at Fayetteville Speedway in the late model in North Carolina. He's going to run one of their cars, uh, weekly at that track, another guy in Ohio. And they say this guy's kind of an up and comer. Um, Harrison Hall, he's going to run. They have a challenge series type deal over in that area. He's going to run that. But the most notable guy of the bunch is a guy by the name of Ross Bales. And now Ross won at Cherokee Speedway um, in the ex- Extreme Dirt Car Series. So he has a he has a win on that series. He's going to actually run 15 shows uh, between the Lucas Oil Series, the World of Outlaws, and then there's an Ultimate Dirt Car Series he's going to run as well. So, you know, they're... It looks like they did their homework. It sounds like quite a few people turned in their resumes, but the people they put in the car, these aren't in my mind. When I first saw this, I'm like, Oh my goodness. They're going to, are they just going to put some Yahoo in this deal? That like, is just kind of like a nobody that they're just going to like try this deal out. I didn't understand how the whole leasing deal was going to work, but these are three notable drivers that have clearly won races. They have experience. They're good behind the wheel. So it's basically a, it's a full ride, you know, sponsorship for the season for these guys. And it'll be, you know, it's, it's nice to see these guys given this many drivers an opportunity to go out and race at, at different levels. One's a local level, one's a little bit more regional, and then one's a little bit more national. So it's kind of fun to see that. And it's going to be fun to watch that Ross Bales. Um, I think he's, he's got some potential to maybe win a few races. Yeah, I agree with Ryan. You know, I'm looking forward to see – uh, how this all shakes out, uh, you know, I I also agree that it appears that they've done their homework and they're not just throwing any Yahoo uh, behind the wheel of the car. 
Uh, Ross Bales is, uh, you know, I, he's he's familiar with late model racing. He was actually a fans fun driver one year at the USA Nationals in Cedar Lake. Um, I remember that. So, yep. you know, he, he, he knows his way around the track in the late model. So it'll be it'll be good to see these drivers have this opportunity. And I'm also interested in seeing how it shakes out because I still think that, uh, you know, if somebody had the money to throw a late model deal together, I think this would be a great idea to do locally to try to get modified drivers and late models. (laughs) Modified guys (laughs) want to drive race cars. I think we should try to get the late model guys in a modified instead. (laughs) (laughs) All right, bro. We're going to stay with you. Ty Majeski. Uh, we've talked about iRacing in the past. Uh, Ty Majeski got a re- iRacing sponsorship deal. Can you expound? Yeah, I believe uh, uh, iRacing will be sponsoring uh, Ty Majeski's NASCAR truck for four races this year. Um, I mean, Ty, I, iRacing and Ty Majeski have a uh, long relationship together. Uh, iRacing has been on Ty Majeski's hood for his super late model that he races around the Midwest. Uh, for several years, iRacing has been on that car. And I know when I interviewed uh, Ty Majeski when he first started racing late models, asphalt late models, that uh, he used iRacing to help uh, familiarize himself with uh, new tracks that he would travel to to race on. Nice. Perfect. And uh, Ryan, I'm going to turn it over to you for the last one here. Ryan Newman out of the hospital and walking away with his daughter's. Yeah, that's great to see. I mean, that was a that was a horrific accident, and you know to be hit, see him walking out of there, and you know he'll be he'll be back in the saddle before you know it. You know, a little one thing I was disappointed. I saw some knuckleheads on Facebook going, "Oh man, you know I think you know I think this is just a marketing ploy from NASCAR. He probably wasn't that hurt." You know, I, I literally yeah. Who I mean, said I had, that? That is crazy. I mean, where did they uh, get that from? I mean, <laughs> some people are from? just brain dead. Every everything's a conspiracy. Uh, there, everything's a conspiracy to some people. I literally hit the unfollow button on about three, four people that were posting that nonsense, and it's like, here's the deal. Yeah, NASCAR clearly planned to have him go upside down and get hit in the in the driver's window at the end of the race. I mean, some people are just stupid, and they just can't. I mean, you can't help it. I mean, if you're dumb, you're dumb. That's just the way it is. Um, but great to see him uh, walking around. Um, I, it doesn't sound like he had any major injuries. You know, pretty pretty sore bumps and bruises, but he'll be he'll be back in the saddle again. And you know, he's actually looking back. He's had some pretty uh, some pretty big crashes in the day. And uh, you know, another thing, and I didn't know about this, but Ryan Newman a, a couple years back actually, um, he's got an engineering background. They actually added a bar into the roll cage for the for the cup cars, and and they actually call it the Newman bar, I believe. And from what I understand, that actually had a a big part in keeping the structure of that roll cage together in that crash. So kind of weird how that works, but, you know, glad to see him back up and at it. Yeah. I saw the same story though. That was kind of cool. And yeah, like, you know, his bar may have saved his own life. So that's pretty interesting. So. Hey, I got one more topic for you guys. We were talking about marketing. We were talking about like personalities. Did either of you guys watch, the the Tyson Fury uh, Widener. Did you guys watch that fight? No, I did not. Dude, oh, I did not. I, I so, heard about that one, but I did not. So people say that race car drivers are nuts, and most of us are. It just is what it, we ain't gonna deny it, right? But this Tyson Fury dude, 
this guy is like off the charts, man. Like, like I mean, first of all, I mean he's he's a massive guy, and he just put the beat down on him. But I actually saw on Facebook on a video that he was actually like they were kind of in the grasp, and he was like licking the blood off of the other guy. I'm like, what is <laughs> like, like people think that we're nuts. Like, I mean, you platelets. <laughs> Uh, does he have CTE already or something? It's like, this guy's completely a lunatic. I'm like, I, I would not want to fight a guy like that that is like licking the blood off somebody or, you know, kind of reminds me of the Ty- Mike, oh, is it Tyson and Holyfield biting the ear. Like, these <laughs> yeah. boxers are just complete nutcases. So he won? Yeah. Obviously. He, he, yeah, he, he, put, uh, he put a beat down on him. Actually, it wasn't even really much of a contest. He kind of dominated the whole deal. And it's funny, like, I, I don't watch boxing. And, in fact, I didn't watch this. But, you know, I, I don't have, like, the – I'm not going to be posing in a magazine anytime soon, right? But this guy's supposed to be a top – and he is a top echelon athlete, you know, champ, you know, whatever – I don't even know what division it was. But the guy's huge. He's got a big beer gut. And he's got love handles and stuff. I'm like, what? This, this is like a – like a pro athlete right here. He doesn't even look the part, but man, he knew for a big guy, that guy could really move and I wouldn't want to get hit by him. I can guarantee you that. But like I said, when you see somebody, he didn't look the part and then all of a sudden he's licking blood off a guy. It's like, what, what are you, what? That's just weird to me. Hey, don't rip on the love handles. Did you guys hear about the goalie in Toronto that filled in on Saturday night? I I did. He used to be a Zamboni guy. He is a Zamboni guy, 42 years old. So the way the NHL works is, you got your two goalies, and you always have a spare just in case, like a, I don't know what they call it, like an on-call. And uh, in the first period, the uh, Carolina Hurricanes goalie, his own guy got, the Toronto guy checked a North Carolina guy in, or, uh, uh, yeah, well, I guess Canes guy, we'll call it, Hurricanes guy, into the goalie. So he went out. So the backup comes in, and he sprints for a puck, and uh, well, in the second period, because it was about halfway through the game, sprints for a puck, and a guy from the Maple Leafs is going full bore. They collect each other. The goalie's helmet flies off. He get you know half concussed, so he's out. So this forty-two-year-old guy, David Ayers, <laughs> shows up, or he's not shows up, but he's there, and he throws on his gear. He's a men's league guy. He played, you know, he's played some competitive hockey in the past. He's forty-two years old, and. All of a sudden, there he is. He shows up, and uh, it's game on. And his first two shots, uh, you know, they went in. But he made eight saves. And, of course, the Canes kept everything to the outside from that point on. But uh, the Canes went on to win. So he's 42 years old. He's got, like, the – he's got a couple of records right now. Like, the oldest guy to ever start a game. The oldest guy (laughs) to ever win a game. And, yeah, he got 500 bucks for winning the game. And – I mean, the NHL owners are meeting next week in Florida. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna say this now. My prediction is they're gonna make a new rule where there's some 30 year old kid or 25 year old kid they're gonna fly out to every game to make sure that this never happens again. But yeah, this guy, <laughs> uh, he made it happen. <laughs> 42 year old guy getting in an. He actually, did you say he started a game too? Then no, he didn't start the game, but he he, oh. he played half the because the second goalie, yeah, second goalie <laughs> got knocked out of like with about eight minutes to go in the second. So he played eight minutes of the second and then the, the you know, 20 minutes of the third. So he played, well, P- you, know, Puka, you know, that you still play men's league hockey. Oh right? gosh. I got, I got you're seven not, games not, this you're weekend. Not, you're older than that. So you gotta be what? You're 44. aren't you? Are you yeah. I keep telling my wife, you know, and my mom, you know, I mean, you know, I gotta be ready. 
Now, now here's the deal. I heard a rumor from a guy you play men's league hockey with, right? That you yep. actually, no matter win or lose, you got your pull-up ritual. And, and I can't unsee the visual, but for, for those of you that are on here, it's as bad as it sounds after every single game. And they're like, yeah, win or lose this freaking guy. I tell you what, he's doing these pull-ups. Like, I'm like, oh my God, I, yeah. I don't ever want to see that. So, so you could be the, the 44 year old guy, maybe for the wild that, that slides in, plays the game and then give them a little show afterwards. Well, I'll tell you what, if they picked up me, they'd win the cup. But right now, that's why they can't get there. They can't get over the hub because they don't have Puka. I mean, there that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was a great story. Bert, did you see that at all? I did not see it. I saw a story about it on ESPN.com. Okay, though. yeah, it was, it was cool. I was like, the guy was, you know, like, he's a Zamboni driver, just like, you know, total, like, dude. And all of a sudden, there he is. You know, he's going to step on and. You know, he made, you know, he answered the call. It was like, you know, but like I said, the owners meet next week and I think they're going to do something about that. Nice. They're going to be calling up Bubs Bramblet from Chisholm, Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. My bells. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we're going to sign off here soon, but I just want to uh, wish Jimmy Mars a happy birthday. On Friday, the uh, February twenty eighth, the uh, young man will turn forty eight. So happy birthday, Jimmy! So, with that, anything else, boys? No, that's it. I thought he was older than that. I was surprised no. to see he's only forty eight. <laughs> yep, he's just a young man yet. Nothing else, Bert? Well, and well, when when I interviewed Jimmy Myers several years ago, he said he wasn't going to be racing in his fifties. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, we got a couple of years. He's good to go. <laughs> <laughs> all right well happy birthday jimmy uh nice job to you boys tonight and as always we tell every one of you every week uh be your dream you're tuned to the one to go show <laughs>